0: The Lord be with you. The The continuation of the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said, The kingdom of God may be compared to when a man going on a journey called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not winnow. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have not winnowed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. As we approach the conclusion of the church year, which always wraps up in November, our readings turn more and more to the big themes about life and death, heaven, hell, and judgment. Today we have three scripture readings about apocalyptic accountability. And the major common thread through it all, including the psalm, is the wrath of God. The prophet Zephaniah begins with a sober reminder, "Be silent, the day of the Lord is at hand. God will hold us accountable." He assures us the day of the Lord is a time of judgment and time of wrath, "dserey, day of wrath." Moses continues the theme in the psalm for today, Psalm 90. "We consume away in thy displeasure and are afraid at thy wrathful indignation." but who regardeth the power of thy wrath, or feareth aright thine indignation. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The Apostle Paul would not agree with those assessments, but he reminds the Christians in Thessalonica in our epistle today that they are children of light, so they need not fear the darkness. They will only be faithful and sober and watchful, for the Lord when he comes to judge the world. God will hold us accountable, but he will also have mercy. And in St. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives us a parable of the talents that has often been applied to his return in glory to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus is our judge and savior. He is the master in the story, the one to hold us all accountable in the end. The admonishing moral with which Jesus closes the story sounds quite harsh. To him who has, will more be given. He will have an abundance, but from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It sounds so unfamiliar to our modern sensibilities, kind of like Robin Hood in reverse. But Jesus is talking about accountability and trustworthiness. God is a good steward of his grace, and he invests his grace where it's going to pay off. The modern Christian, of course, hardly gives a thought to the wrath of God anymore. It's something that's either dismissed as a relic of a bygone era, as a description of primitive man and his fear, with the idea that we're more enlightened today, Or it's dismissed with a kind of Marcion heretical taint. Well, that's the God of the Old Testament. We don't believe in him anymore. We believe in a God of love. I found it telling that in one of my larger Bible reference books, it didn't even have an entry on the subject of the wrath of God. I've never heard a sermon on it. Maybe it's about time that we had one. Now, it is true that one, of course, reads about things like the Egyptian plagues and the Israelite wars in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Apostle John does tell us God is love. But that's a very selective comparison and perhaps an unfair one because you can just as easily compare Old Testament verses extolling the love and mercy of God against New Testament passages warning about hell and punishment and damnation. The modern Christian may quickly dismiss the idea of God having wrath. But as Catholic Christians who contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, that's not even an option for us. It's a part of divine revelation, something that we don't get to determine or decide. St. Paul, in fact, begins his theological treatise, his letter to the Romans, which is a tool to kind of introduce himself to the Roman church by laying out the gospel that he preaches. This is what I'm all about. This is what I talk about. He begins his argument with this verse, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. What is wrath? by the way. Well, it's the same word often translated as anger. What does it mean when the Bible talks about God getting angry? Anger is an emotion. Anger also is a a passion, an urge of our nature. Anger is also an act of the will. We usually think of anger solely in the first sense as an emotion We feel anger, of course. In the biblical vocabulary, we burn with anger. Sometimes it smolders, sometimes it flares up. And God is described in the same way, burning with anger at human sin. We find this language repeated, and again and again throughout the story of Exodus, God's anger burns hot against Pharaoh, against Moses, against his own people. To say that God gets angry is to affirm that God is moved by human action and inaction. That is, he's not so transcendent that he just takes no notice or care about human affairs, that he's totally disinterested in our actions, as in the theology of the rationalist deity of the 18th century humanists. God does care about human beings, human lives, what we do, the things in our lives, in our world. At times, he burns with anger about it. At other times, he is moved with compassion. The morality comes not in the feeling, but in the doing. What do you, what do, you do with the feelings you have? The feelings of even anger. We talk about, of course, anger or wrath as one of the seven deadly sins, or more accurately, the capital vices. Vices are bad habits, virtues are good habits. We all have passions, drives of our nature, as beings made in the image of God. Like God, we have passions. They are God-given parts of our nature. But he also made us to be in his likeness. His design that was that we should not be governed, ruled, dominated by our passions, driven by our emotions, but that our will and our action should always conform to reason. Of course, God is the ground of all being, of divine reason, of the Logos. That is, God never loses it, He never flies off the handle. In fact, he is repeatedly described as slow to anger. That's how much his character contrasts with what we see in ourselves. His actions always accord with reason. To assert that God cannot or does not get angry is to say that God does not care, that he's disinterested in us. But St. Peter says, "'Cast all your cares on him.'" for he cares for you. In human terms, of course, we typically experience individual wrath when a person has lost control and is only acting in accordance with their passions. Someone overcome by fury, driven by rage, consumed by jealousy. This is not how God operates, nor has it ever been. Novation says God's anger arises out of his wisdom, not out of vice. A loving God cares about his creation and especially about his people that he made in his image. A compassionate and just God is sometimes moved to intervene with rescue or with judgment when his wisdom calls for it. Now, each of the capital vices, or the deadly sins, has a corresponding virtue. The virtue that is paired up with anger is patience. And, of course, one of the central descriptive words about God is the Hebrew word hesed. It's hard to translate, hard to capture in just one word. It is God's love, his patience, his long-suffering, tolerant, pity, and kindness. God may feel wrath. He may act out his wrath, but he is never driven by wrath. His wrath is not personal retribution, but measured justice. For example, when a reporter talks about an organized crime family experiencing the wrath of the justice system, well, this is how St. Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. Origen said, when we read of the anger of God, either in the Old Testament or the New, we do not take such expressions literally. Of course, the third century Bible scholar was famous for using allegory. Origen explains further, we speak of the wrath of God. However, we do not maintain that it indicates any passion on his part. Rather, it is something that is assumed in order to discipline by stern means those sinners who have committed grievous sins. Look at it another way. If people were punished by God outside of his wrath, outside of his anger, then it would have seemed quite arbitrary and disconnected from any moral accountability. Wrath characterizes God's righteous response to evil. It is in keeping with his character as a God of justice and of love. Novation was an African priest in Rome in the the third century, and much of a scholar, a deep thinker. Before he fell into a kind of Puritan schism during some persecutions, he wrote very insightfully on this issue and its force in the culture. He wrote, it is the fear of God alone that guards the mutual society of men. By this, life is sustained, protected, and governed. However, such fear is taken away if man is persuaded that God is without anger. Reason and truth persuade us that he is moved and is indignant when unjust actions are done. What does a society look like that no longer believes in a God who sees us? or forget that he is moved by unjust actions, by human sin. The words of Thomas Jefferson inscribed on the northwest wall of his memorial are these, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Jefferson was one of those deists of the 18th century who saw God as a creator and lawgiver, but afterward kind of passive, sort of sets everything up in motion and then steps back and has tea or something. Jefferson famously cut out all of the miracles from his copy of the New Testament. Yet even he cringed and feared that God, the God who never seems to get involved, would be moved with compassion and righteous indignation. It's some of the things that we do on earth. Jesus talks about accountability in the gospel today. The kingdom of God is like a master who entrusted precious gifts to his stewards. And when he returns, he will hold us accountable for what we do with it. The last steward tried to just coast with what he'd been given and not put forth any effort to build, to expand his kingdom. Live up to the investment that God has made in you. God wants your cooperation. He invested in us, and he wants a return on that investment. How else can we have a kingdom built up by its citizens? Jesus Christ is returning as the judge of the living and the dead. Whether at the last day or our own individual last day, the Master returns. In the meantime, he's entrusted us with talent, with time and treasure. When the master returns, will you be ready? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to set you over much in my kingdom. Or when the master returns, will he chide you? Oh, you wicked servant, lazy servant. I'm going to take away what I gave you and give it to someone else who can put it to good use. For to everyone who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance, but from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is the supreme judge of the living and the dead. His anger was kindled at the servant who did not appreciate the value of his gifts. He judged him to be worthless and said, cast him into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. And Paul reminded us today that God provided deliverance from that wrath that we deserve. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, you may have noticed, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That deliverance is purchased by the power of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and the power of his resurrection unites us to his life-giving spirit. We deserved the wrath of God for our sins. But as Ezekiel mused, does God take any pleasure in the death of a sinner? Or rather that he would turn from his sin and live? Paul responds to that thought in Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved, by him from the wrath of God. It is God's wrath against sin and his compassion for sinners that moved him to come down from heaven and be our Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.